Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is Liam Brennan, candidate for mayor. Thank you for joining us, Liam. Thank you for having me here, Justin. It's a lovely day to be here with you. Thanks. Um, I always love to start off the conversation with something light. Um, So, What's a hot take? No. <laughs> what What is true to Liam Brennan that other people just haven't come around to yet, right? What What is true to Liam Brennan that other people haven't come around to yet? Yeah. Um, My go-to is that I don't believe in umbrellas. Oh, yeah? Right? Today is a rain day, and so I'm always, anytime it rains, I'm just like, that's not a real thing. Like, I know they exist, and I know they are, are a tangible item, Uh-huh. but I would never have them. <laughs> they definitely are a tangible item, but you would never have one out. No. Yeah. Can't. I'm not a big umbrella guy either. Okay. You know? A good rain is like, I like a good rain. And You'd like to be rained on. Well, no, I just like the, the, a good rainy day. Actually, I do appreciate it. My daughter, like, really appreciates rainy days. Like, she once wrote a sign during COVID when we were, like, doing, like, homeschoolish stuff, and she... It's like, I love rainy days. Oh. It's fascinating. So um, I appreciate that about her. She really like, loves to go out and like jump in puddles. And I think, you know, maybe we should all just be a lot more freer to just jump in the puddles when the, when the rain comes. Okay. Puddle, av- puddle advocate. You That's the hot take. That's my hot take. Jump in the, if it's raining, jump in the puddles. You get lemons, make the lemonade. Uh, uh, you heard it here. Unless uh, there are consequences, then you didn't hear it here. <laughs> So, Liam Brennan, um, you are running for mayor of New Haven. Um, you know, tell us about yourself. Tell us, like, how did you, how did you get here? Mm-hmm. And then what decided, made you decide to run, right? Like, how did you end up in New Haven? And then, you know, the story of yourself, of what made you decide to run? Got it. Yeah. Um I'm going to go quickly back to the hot take of running and the rain. The one thing I will say about if you're running and it's raining, you got lit literature folks. For those of the folks out there, like all these campaign people call it the papers that you like pass out at the doors and hang on the doors lit. Okay. So like if it's raining, that's a little bit of a problem because your lit's going to could get all wet. Even if it's in the backpack, then it could get stuck together. And that's not a good sign for the doors, but people are home when it's raining. So that's when an umbrella actually does come in kind of handy. So it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Anyway, so so I am. I'm running for mayor. I'm here running for mayor. It's a, it's a thing. Um, I came to New Haven in 2004. Um, I went to Yale for law school, um, and I found it to be uh, like it was just such a strange experience. You know, I felt like totally out of place, um, uh, didn't know what I was doing. I had, um, for the year before, I'd been working in a bar back in Stanford where I grew up, um, and um, uh, and I felt like all of a sudden I was dropped in this like crazy 
you know, law school world. Um, people with lots of ideas, which were interesting, but all the sort of like lots of ideas of like what the world was and how, I don't know, you know, they worked really hard to get there, which I appreciate, but um, <laughs> it was just strange. <laughs> I can't, I can't describe it as any other way. And I felt totally out of place. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of like fell in love with New Haven. Like I, the, the, the like the um, outlet for me was to be involved in the city and to be here and be part of the city. I was working at, at I don't know if everybody remembers the old playwright that's downtown um, that's now had 8 million different names since it, <laughs> since the closed down. So I was waiting tables there. Um, uh, I was volunteering out at Junta in Fairhaven um, and just getting involved in, in city and civic life um, was great. And I loved it. I thought New Haven was just such an amazing collection of um, people and beauty and um opportunity I, it, it, it was just a place i love being and so uh, i kind of wanted to stay here uh, i initially uh, got a job uh, with the department of justice and had to agree to go to dc for three years uh, but as soon as my three-year commitment was up i was able to transfer back up to the office here in new haven and i uh, came back as soon as i could and been here ever since um and it's been great uh, i was assistant u.s attorney for a number of years here um in New, in New Haven, where I did financial fraud and public corruption cases, um, I then um, through that process ended up overseeing the um, public corruption task force for the state of Connecticut that oversaw all the federal agencies investigating corruption issues, uh, which in Connecticut can be a, um, a continuous churn of things to look into. Um, uh, some valid, some not, you know, and that, and, um, that was a huge um one, it was fascinating, two, it was super important, uh, a great education on like how politics can go wrong, um, but also uh, an education on how important it is to do that type of job really right, too. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes, often where there's smoke, there's fire, but sometimes where there's smoke, there's just smoke. And it's really important that people who are in those positions um, uh, really do their dil- diligence to make sure if there's just smoke that they close things up and put them away and um, that people come out as unscathed as possible uh, because it really has huge impacts on people's lives, even if there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And um, that was um, one of uh, the biggest lessons from my whole time. You know, um, people will dedicate themselves to, to a case and to an investigation, then it's hard to let go because you've invested all this time, but sometimes there's just no case to be made. And so um, it was a really fascinating, important work that I thought really made a big difference on um, how our system worked. You know, like I think um looking at financial fraud cases and um people who engage in financial fraud like i grew up in a neighborhood where i did feel like there was regular crime occurring around us all the time um uh not super bad you know but but it was like a constant thing um and so I, i very much understood and feel like when you feel unsafe in that way it's something that very much impacts your life but i also looked at the like how we deal with the issues of of crime in the United States and how we deal with it um, systemically. And there were oftentimes it's people who don't have a lot of opportunities who are um, and don't have a lot of other options who get in trouble for engaging in illegal activity. Um, But then there were people who had every opportunity in the world and had everything going for them, you know, and they still did things like this and they often got away with it. And like the system could not hold them accountable and sometimes didn't even try. And that drove me wild. 
And we tilted the scales of justice to so much enforce upon people um, who were denied access to opportunities and denied access um, to resources. Um, and we came down hard on them. And then when it was hard to hold people who had access to resources and had access to opportunities to hold them to account, often just washed our hands and said, oh, this is tough. We can't do it. Or oh, we can't make the case, you know? And so what I wanted to do when I went into the Department of Justice was like, push those scales as much as possible in the other direction. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time investigating like um, hedge fund managers and um, debt collectors and uh, people who were like ripping off just everyday folks and like living big luxurious lifestyles and having the best attorneys and the best representation. And, you know, we were totally overmatched by, by the defense in those cases um, and trying to like push the scales uh, to be more even in that way. Um, it's a bit like a Sisyphus task, you know, <laughs> like it's just, you're constantly rolling the, the, the rock up the hill. And so, um, it's super fascinating if you care about it. Um, uh, but it also can burn you out. And I think after a number of years, um, I benefited from a number, a lot of great things. Like we had great leadership at the office, um, had great mentors. Uh, we had a U.S. attorney, U.S. attorneys, various ones, but particularly Deirdre Daly, um, who was very forward thinking and really tried to also tilt the whole system and change the system, you know? And so, um, I got involved, um, in support court, which was the drug rehabilitation court that, um, was able to give people time off, uh, the supervised release, um, if they participated in this voluntary program and Deirdre did a lot of like kind of piloted a lot of those, um, initiatives while she was U.S. attorney, which was great. Um, but there's only so much you can do. I mean, the system is still the system often. There's only so much you can do in those positions at those times. You can do the best you can in each individual case. But I also wanted to eventually be free to advocate for how the whole system should change. And you can't do that from that position because you have certain obligations of impartiality and kind of like stay, you know, to be non non-political, which I think is really important. But um, there comes a point where like you have to, or I wanted to be political free to be political mm. and i was also burnt out from the constant you know repeat of the, of the cases and stuff so i eventually left i went to new haven legal assistance um and did legal aid for a number of years at both at new haven legal assistance and then i was the executive director of the connecticut veterans legal center which is a statewide legal services program that represents veterans recovering from homelessness and mental illness um and helping them attain housing health care and income so i did that for a number of years um and that was great. It, you know, it was like this whole other, you know, the legal aid work. Uh, that's how I got very involved. Like the, our campaign is built a lot around housing issues. That's how I got very involved in housing issues um, in New Haven and statewide. Um, um, and just kind of justice in the legal system generally by um, instead of like going after like the rich and powerful of representing, you know, those who are disadvantaged economically, socially, whatever. Um, uh did that for a number of years and then eventually um, got asked to apply to be the inspector general in Hartford uh, where I investigate complaints against the police. After um, 2020 and um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests, Hartford really pioneered um, a whole revision of its police accountabilities uh, ordinances at the local level. And um, uh, they instituted an independent inspector general position to investigate complaints uh, against the police. Um, and so uh, that's what I've been doing uh, since then. 
until this campaign. So here we are. I've been talking a lot, so I want to give. I don't know if you want me to keep going. <laughs> For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to WNHHFM 103.5, Just in Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, talking to Liam Brennan, running for mayor of New Haven. So you, that is a great snapshot of you. Uh, so yeah, you, what, you said you, you felt held back from being political. So what is being political to you? And then, you know, why are you running in politics? Yeah. So I, I think when we, it's no secret, like, the wheels are coming off the American system right now. <laughs> I mean, like, like we just all need to be frank about that. It's happening at the national level, um, and it trickles down everywhere. I think Connecticut is a relatively stable state, and um, you don't we have don't have secret documents in your backpack. I don't have secret documents <laughs> in my backpack. No secret emails or anything. But, um, uh, but I think we have certain systems set up that are more than been stretched and um uh and the act of democracy of people um governing themselves is always a growth process like we've never fully had a full democracy it's always been like a movement toward or trying to move toward more and more democracy um but then uh to do that we do from age to age and um time to time need to reevaluate the systems that we have and when i look at the you know growing up um during the time of the war on drugs and um, mass incarceration and just seeing how carceral we've become um, where this country that believes itself to be the land of the free imprisons like more people per capita than another other country. Like there's a systemic problem that is occurring there. And it is a problem. We often, I think look if that problem, like many other problems, we often look to the national government for, um, but, uh, I think there is a lot we can do at the local level on every issue that we often overlook because we don't, you know, we have, we don't get local issues. Don't get as much attention. Um, they don't get as much, um, publicity and, um, they may be not as sexy, but, uh, they make a huge difference in people's lives. And so, um, from very early on, you know, when I first got to New Haven, got very involved in, in local issues just from an advocacy role outside of um, any official position. So I was, um, when I volunteered at Junta, um, was very involved in helping support the work that Junta and Unidad Latina in Acción did in pushing the um, Elm City resident ID card, um, which was um, a card to credentialize any resident, regardless of their immigration status uh, in the city, so they could like present themselves at institutions and verify who they are um, and help them feel integrated into the larger city community. This was a way, this was pioneered here and then became kind of national news and then other places did it and then the state did it as well. And this is, um, this is I thought, was a very good example of how something piloted locally can have huge, broad effects. Um, and make a real difference in people's lives. Um, and I think there's just so many other ways that we can do that. So when I went to New Haven Legal Assistance, we were doing, we had launched a community economic development unit um, that now is called a community economic justice unit. But we kind of uh, engaged, the idea was to represent broader groups rather than individuals. Legal aid generally represents individuals, um, but we were trying to like represent groups because that might have more of a systemic effect. And when we kind of, canvassed different neighborhoods in the city, the real issue that came up a ton was housing affordability. 
Like mm. this was such a big issue and it is a huge issue. Now it's a huge issue nationally. This was like before it kind of got the kind of national prominence that it has, I think today. Um, but um, uh, Christian Community Action and Mothers and Others for Justice were putting together a coalition called the Room for All Coalition, which still exists today and still active today. Um, and um, LAA got very involved and we got more groups involved in it and kind of pushed a whole um, housing affordability platform with the city government. There's affordable housing task force at the time um, and we worked to like get people out to advocate for specific policies and to push them at the city level and what just became so evident to me there was that um, we have there's all sorts of rules and policies that we can institute locally that can promote housing affordability and just huge differences in people's lives um, that we're often just not thinking through, you know? Um, and if we just like take a look, like an example I like to give these days is just look at our zoning code. The zoning code we operate under today is in essence, there's been changes, tweaks here and there, but is in essence the urban renewal zoning code that was imposed on us during urban rule. We all, and this is where I'm saying the system is falling apart, right? That we all recognize that that was like a mistake, you know? It was like a, maybe like a well-intentioned, big ambitious attempt, but it like, destroyed neighborhoods, particularly black and brown neighborhoods, um, tried to uh, suburbanize New Haven. And all it did was like bring in like polluting uh, highways that destroyed homes, um, helped exacerbate um, flight to the suburbs and racial segregation. Um, but the, the rules that we imposed at those times are what we are accepting as the rules that govern how we do housing in our city today. We need to change that, you know, like that need, we need to one, become aware of that and then work to change that just as a first step. There's so much more we need to do. I mean, the general kind of, um, housing as a commodity is, is like a real problem as a, as an idea. I mean, it is, it's been helpful for many families because it's been a way that many families have built intergenerational wealth and, um, we want that opportunity for all families. Um, but at the same time, looking at it as commodity is like driving a lot of, our housing cost issues and kind of the um, out of city absentee landlords that are buying up properties and like forcing kind of rents to go up and repairs to go down. <laughs> um, so there's like much broader issues than just the zoning code out there, but like the zoning code represents just kind of this perfect example of like us agreeing to continue to live with a mistake. And I want to, I want to, what I'm trying to do with this campaign is say like, these are problems. These are systemic problems we can take action right now at the local level to change those systemic issues for the better of our residents in our city and our future. Yeah, no, I, uh, th this morning I started my morning with someone calling about being evicted by marshals. And that's just like, it's only eight o'clock. Uh, -huh. <laughs> uh and, and so, you know, speaking on housing, uh, the other day, uh, the independent, right had an article about uh, the Fair Rent Commission mm -hmm. pushing for a landlord who was not making repairs to for the tenant to pay $1 to the landlord. And so what other iterative things do you feel need to be done? Do you feel this administration is taking the housing crisis seriously? Are there things that you would do differently? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Um the more muscular fair rent commission is great. I think that's a great step in the right direction, but I think anyone who's really like taking the housing crisis seriously would be promoting it like ambitiously looking at, um, redoing our whole 
zoning code and then coming up with more ways to produce housing um, for residents here that it, that is affordable and and take on um, this landlord issue that, you, that you're referring to. So um, we have had a proliferation of companies buying up properties here in New Haven um, and not they're kind of like extracting the wealth from here like they're raising rents um they are not keeping the housing in good repair and they're just rolling in the profits from that and if you know somebody doesn't like it then they evict them and they can get another tenant because we have a we have a less shortage of housing and so like they the landlords can really kind of call the shots so there's a new budget proposed this year right we have 12 housing inspectors here in the city for um like upwards to 50,000 units that's not enough to get the job done and um we need more housing inspections and we need them and we need the inspectors to do them with teeth, you know, to really take, take them on. But in the new budget this year, there was like 34 new positions proposed for the city government in general. Um, uh, over a third of those or, um, were in the police department, but no new housing inspectors. And that I don't think is taking the housing crisis seriously. I don't think that that is really, thinking about public safety broadly, because this is, this really affects people's health and safety and their well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they can be housed, that's, that's a health issue, a safety issue. If they are housed, whether they're living in dignified conditions, that is a health and safety issue as well. Um, but that part of public safety as an idea is neglected by the administration, and that's what you see in the budget. Like a budget is a representation of our values in dollars, mm-hmm. and where we put our money represents what we value as a city and the money was not being put towards um uh, maintaining the housing that we have and holding the landlords accountable if we don't do that um we will see a deterioration of our housing stock which will only make our housing crisis worse and so we need to maintain the housing that we have and then we need to add more additional housing to um to the city um in general as well and so i don't i don't think that that's been given the kind of attention um, and the urgency that it needs. I mean, what you hear from the administration also is that, yeah, the zoning code should be updated, um, but it would take, you know, like a long time to do. And fair enough, these processes do take a long time, but like Hartford was able to do it in, you know, a handful of years, like they did it, you know? And so like, if you have the will, you will find the way and you can get, and that politics should be about galvanizing the public to come together for some joint purpose and, nice. That and if you care about this issue, then you'd be out, you know, on the what is it, the hustings, <laughs> just out, you know, mobilizing LT pu- Grasso uh, <laughs> on LT Grasso, mobilizing the public for this. And so that's what I'm trying to do with this campaign because I don't see it being done now. And I think it's, I think it's really important now and and for our future. I so uh, a question that I see in something that many people right ask themselves. There are a ton of white guy mayors, right? Luke Bronin, mm-hmm. right? Elliker, right? There's basically not a major city in the state that isn't run by some white guy. So, what makes you different? What what what's the special sauce? I mean, that's totally true. It's a huge. It is a huge problem, uh, and it's something I've like questioned myself on. And I think people um, uh, who our right to question, you know, I mean, I have people who are interested in the campaign, but ask themselves that same question. And I think it's fair and valid and good and important. That's uh, so in, in our household. Like when we were, when I was contemplating doing this and having conversations with my wife, this was a specific question. She asked me like, 
oh, come on. Do you really want New Haven to have another white guy mayor? And I was like, no, I don't. But I just really want to do this job and push these ideas. So like, you know, you know, um, it's not because I want the, you know, so, but I, I do think it's a, um, it's a fair, fair, important question. Um, I think the special sauce, you know, uh, so I can't help that. And, and I, and, and whatever I'm about to tell you is like why people should overlook that. I do want to say that I fully recognize that, um, whatever that is still doesn't take away like all the experiences that of just being a white man in this world has given, you know, to me and, um, uh, and that's still a reality. Um, but the difference, I mean, you know, we're all different people, the, the candidates who are running, um, I have dedicated, you know, my professional life to public service, um, and trying to push these issues on a systemic level. Like, um, I am not unknown in various neighborhoods around the city. Cause I've been working there on the outs- outside, um, on these issues for years. Um, and so, um, it's something that comes very, um, from kind of like deep within, you know, like something like I will continue to work on these issues, whether we win or lose. Um, I have worked on them before, obviously the thinking about, uh, running for mayor and, um, I will continue to do so no matter what happens. Um, I also, you know, like our backgrounds are each different. We've got a McKinsey consultant, um, who is running. I was one of the other white guys. Um, uh, so I, instead I've worked, you know, um, in financial fraud and public corruption for legal aid, you know, I had a different professional background and then my personal background, you know, I, I do come from a working class neighborhood, um, a diverse neighborhood, um, a product of diverse urban, uh, public schools. I was went to public school in Stanford um, those experiences have all informed me that <laughs> I'm still a white dude. You know what I mean? Like, can't help that. But, um, but my background, I know how to present my background is not exactly how you would think. Um, with just looking at the presentation though, mm. if the, that makes sense, I'm not sure that makes sense. No, th- that makes sense. Uh, for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to just in time conversations, WNHH FM 103.5. Uh, here with Liam Brennan and myself, Justin Farmer. Uh, so that, thank you for answering that question. I, I think many people want to know. Um, uh, public safety is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, there, right, there is the issues around car thefts. There's issues around shootings there's uh the uh general temperament uh, of people having either being for the police department or against the police department mm-hmm. the morale of the police department morale of communities what what does public safety look like to you and how do the police play a role in mm-hmm. mm-hmm um yeah, public, I mean, public safety is a huge issue and it really makes a difference on people's lives. Like, um, you know, we're going to get there and people are going to want to put me like in the reform progressive bucket because that is where I am, you know? And so um, I'm just going to be honest about that. I think the system that we have is built on a faulty foundation and needs to be like significantly changed. But that doesn't mean that these issues are not really important. And kind of going back to your question, like, what's the special sauce or what's your experience that's different? Like, the neighborhood I grew up in, 
you know, as I was mentioning before, like crime was kind of like a regular thing that we see. And it, and it was not fun. You know, like it, it was like you felt it. Like I'd see like drug paraphernalia out in my front lawn. There'd be these cars that would park and my dad would go out and like knock on the window and ask them to move around. And my mom would be watching him and she'd be like scared, you know, like just like really the fear that you feel affects your health and well-being, you know. Um, when I was 13, I caught a man trying to break in the back of my house. I was home alone with my sister. Um, literally, just then, I, I come to the window. The dude is standing in the window. And then, in, rather than run away, he, like, motions to me to come open the window. Like, it was insane. I know it looked like no one was home. So I think he was very surprised to see me. Like, none of the lights were on. So I ran, got my sister. We huddled under a desk and called 911. Um, and then the police came. And, you know, no one... I mean, a few people in the world have been more happy to see the police show up anywhere, you know? But then the story doesn't end there, too. Later on in the night, so I have to give a description of this man, and um, later on in the night, the police say, tell me, they, a few blocks from my house, they think they caught the guy, and they want me to go identify him. So I get in the back of a squad car, and I get driven by. They've got this man standing on the sidewalk. Two officers are holding him. Lights are shining in his face. He's not the dude, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was so frightened earlier that night, but the look on this man's face, he was so, you know, just thinking about what that experience must be like if when you are not the person was seared in my memory as well. And so from just like so early on, it has been very clear to me that how we do public safety can often be a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we're trying, or like the idea, the, the good idea behind it is like protecting the public, um, but it comes down on the public and it often comes down on black and brown residents, um, lower income residents harder than everyone else. Um, and uh, if not used properly, um, can destroy people's lives mm. unfairly. Uh, and that's what I, that, and I, and I saw for a brief moment, a glimpse into that with this man's face that night and he's 13 years old. So that's kind of always driven how I've approached this issue of public safety. And it's something that's like really, really important here in New Haven. When we see, you know, there's been a plethora of exonerations over the last few years. We have like right. advanced DNA testing and, um, um, greater examination of what the police and prosecutors have done over the years in Connecticut. We've had 31 exonerations in the last few years. 15 of them have come from New Haven. Over half of them have come from New Haven. This is a, that's a huge systemic problem. Those are 15 people's lives who were put into jail improperly. Their lives stolen from them in the name of public safety. So whenever we think about how we do public safety, we have to have that in mind. And we have to have it at the forefront of our minds. Um, I do think we have an obsession in this country with guns. And I think gun culture is a huge problem and it's not just i'm not just talking about private gun culture i'm also talking about law enforcement gun culture as well i think there is not like the police or any specific police officers specifically but just the way we as a collective think about um using law enforcement and um arming them i in looking at all that law enforcement does from investigating murders and assaults to traffic tickets there are some things that can be done that do not need paramilitary personnel to do them um 
like traffic tickets. Like you do not need a paramilitary personnel that's armed to give you a traffic, to just give a speeding ticket. Uh, and so um, I think it's really important that we think through all, all of those things in our system that we've just come to accept because it's just like life. But if, if we hadn't had a lot of, um, you know, armed personnel doing a lot of those like traffic enforcement, a lot of the, um, you know, police murders that have come from, from traffic stops would not have occurred, you know? And so I think that's part of thinking through the whole system. I think just as we think about how, or at least I do, and a lot of other progressive people do think about how we should regulate guns in the private sphere, we also need to think about it also in the public sphere as well. And do we need this set of public safety, public servants to enforce that part of laws, or should they only be enforcing like part of them? And we think of new ways to do that. And so um, even even taken more to a more like um, granular level, if I can pull on my own experience as inspector general, there is a number of things um, a number of complaints we I've seen um, where there is something I can do for a resident. Like there is allegations of um, improper search. And when I investigated, there was an improper search. Like I had one instance where um, uh, the search warrant a police department executed on a house uh, called for searching the first floor apartment. They searched the second floor apartment as well and handcuffed all the people in there. <laughs> this was a total violation of their rights. So there, so there's remedies there. You know, we can say that was wrong under the law, but then there's other things that are wrong morally, but are actually not wrong under the law, and that's a systemic problem. So, for example, when you get stopped under a traffic stop, um, the police, if they have a valid reason to stop you, can order you out of the car for any reason whatsoever. The Supreme Court said if it, the stop is valid in the interest of um, officer safety, which is based on faulty studies from the 1960s we've had updated studies since then which found that this actually makes officers less safe to order people out of their cars but put that aside for the moment the 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 the, the foundation of the supreme court decision is wrong but um they've said in the interest of officer safety they can order you out of car whether they want to or not whether i mean with, with any reason or no reason at all as long as the, the stop was valid and the stop can be a tr turn signal you know or it can be speeding turn signal broken tail light whatever so people ordered from their car when they've done nothing else but had like a broken taillight feel extremely violated and understandably so because it feels like a search or it feels like some escalation of the police uh, citizen contact. But unless the city adopts its own rules, its own more stringent rules, there's nothing legally wrong there and there's no recourse for that person. And um, that's really, that's, a systemic problem you know the cities can decide through their own policies or local ordinances or states can decide through their own laws to limit activities like that but if they don't then the supreme court has given um uh the police free reign in that in that realm and that has huge impacts on how people relate to their public safety servants you know these are people who are working for them they're working for all all the citizens and they feel violated by them um in this way and there's a lot of other examples like that. And so um, uh, that's where I think we need to really like rethink through the whole system, you know. Mm. For those of y'all who have just joined us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, here with Liam Brennan, talking about policing. Um, 
I, I to 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 play the non-socialist advocate. <laughs> Do it. Play the part. Uh, as I don't uh, uh, give power to the devil. No. Uh, uh, what about the people who say, well, you know, what if someone had guns mm-hmm. or drugs or had a rocket launcher in the car and you didn't stop them? Then what? Um. Well, you still even you'd still need probable cause to search that car. Um, so that's just an important, that is one illegal thing that, that the citizens do can and hold on to. Um, but I think this is a huge, I think this is a really big problem. Um, I I mean, the issue of guns is a huge, um, issue. And I do think that's where we, I do think police and what I like to term as real investigations are really important. You know, investigating the gun pipeline, people are profiting off of producing guns and selling them on whatever market they are, whether legal or black market to people here in New Haven. And that's causing, uh, uh, murders and deaths and and shots, whether intentional or not. Um, uh, and so that needs to be stopped and that needs to be investigated. Um, but that's where like, I'm trying to take an approach to all government. We need to do it in like the most effective way. And what is an effective way to doing to do that? Um, randomly like using car stops to get at the gun pipeline is not, has been shown to be not an effective way to, mm. to get at guns. Um, investigating when there are shots fired, treating all of those like they were a murder, like for, uh, uh, putting those resources to them, like having more detectives rather than traffic police is actually more effective, uh, in that pipeline. And I think we should be thinking about, um, this doesn't necessarily have to have a carceral, um, uh, uh, end to it if people have killed people or injured people uh, and it should but um removing the guns from our locality i think is really really important and something that the city should do and so i think we we here in connecticut have the ability to enact local gun regulations we should and the city's not doing that instead we've upped traffic stops in an attempt to get guns and what the um current administration will tell you is we've gotten 125 guns this year that's actually a really bad number it's a low hit rate for what they've been doing they've they've up traffic stops to the point where they've done like around over five thousand traffic stops this year so that's like a two percent hit rate on the guns (coughs) that's not good so i think we need to this is where we need to be more effective with those resources um and and really take those on um uh and um and that's what you know that's what i that's what i'm trying to do and so um I do think, I think that's a valid concern. And, you know, as somebody who had somebody try, you know, possibly breaking into their house, the worry is that they do have a gun or a weapon that's going to, they're going to harm you in some way. And I don't want that to happen to anyone. And, you know, in, in the amazing thing is here this year, um, even as the police have been doing that, we've had murders going up. So like our murder rate is like similar to what it was in 2021. It's not good. We've had the equivalent of a mass shooting in New Haven. It's just been spread out over our first six months of the year. And, that should be as much of a problem as any mass shooting that we see, but it doesn't make the same news because it's just one person often or two people, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and it's not in a school or it's, you know what I mean? There's like, you know, the, the media writes off the victims in those instances um, and that their families don't get those cases investigated in the same way. Uh, but it's the same, it's the same outcome. And that's a real huge problem on drugs. I do want to go to drugs for you for a minute because you did mm-hmm. bring up drugs as well. Whether they had drugs in their car. I mean, the war on drugs is over. Like, 
it's done we've lost you know and like and now like do people know that i mean i think i think people know this the thing is like as you saw drugs i think drugs is a public health issue Mm -hmm. um when it relates when it intersects with violence the problem is violence and we need to address violence but um but drugs need to be i think addressed in a public health way um now we don't want people you know, people don't want drugs being sold on the front lawn or out in the street in front of them. That's totally fine. But police can still disperse that. Like they can still get people, you know, that that's not allowed. It's not legal. It can be put a stop to, but like the idea of like going after and getting all the drugs and, um, it just hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for 50 years. Um, and as soon as people started, um, seeing the users of those drugs as, um, white middle-class people, they started taking more of a public health approach, which I think is telling to how the whole system operates um because you know the vict if you think of um the uh people who are arrested for drugs the, the offenses they tend to be um more likely to be black and brown more likely to be lower income even though we know that drug use spans race and class and uh locality and so we have been waging a war on us not on drugs but on a subset of our population um we've been raising raging uh, waging a racist war and i think it the only way to bring an end to that is to like be upfront about that and be um, honest about that. And so um, having grown up in a neighborhood where I find drug paraphernalia outside, I didn't like it. Like I don't think we don't need to like allow that to occur, but we don't also the idea that we're going to like arrest people for possession of drugs. It's not going to work. You know, anyone who's loved anyone who's had an addiction problem is, will know that no one's going to get better by going to jail. So, I think we. I think it's time to be upfront about that and take new approaches there. No, no, that that. Uh, yeah, I, I. I wish everybody knew that the war on drugs was done. But yeah, I'm still wearing my fatigues. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know it's not. Um, it's tough. It's really it it it. Um, in some ways it's tough because, you know, we, we see the, the, um, you know, the fentanyl crisis is real. Mm. The effect on people's lives are real. Um, no one wants a loved one to die from this. And so they're obviously mad at whomever got them involved in it in the first place. Um, but then also going, so I, I just think I do have a philosophical thought that the, that the public health is the right approach, but also, going back to what I'm trying to think of through in all levels of government on every issue here, like what is effective? We have 50 years of evidence and the 50 years of evidence tells us this is not effective. Like it hasn't, it hasn't worked. And so we need to be honest about that even amidst the pain. And so that we can come up with solutions that do actually. Uh, seeing we're coming towards the, the nearing of our time. I'll hit you with two questions. Um, it is Pride Month, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, there has been a host of, uh, you know, anti-trans legislation, uh, 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 mass homophobic attacks, right? Homophobic rhetoric. Um, what can we as a city do? What can you as a city, as potential mayor do? And then, um, you know, I, I think the other question is, the, the Yale is a huge player when it comes to New Haven and what is their obligation? What should their obligation be to the city? What does that look like? What would that look like for you? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so Pride Month and um, attacks on trans people or homophobic attacks. Um, you know, I think New Haven has often been at the forefront of building a welcoming culture um, uh, for everyone, um, including um, LGBTQ plus um, residents. Uh, but that's something we need to build on and something we need to make sure, um, like any garden, it needs to be tended to and it needs to be cultivated. And there's also frontiers that we can push. And I think um, it's just, just, it is important um, to be, to state our values and then to live them out and protect all of our residents equally. Um, and so, for example, like one of the things we had, a uh, my kids go to Edgewood School, um, for June, um, uh, we have town hall meetings. So like, there's like a presentation and two of the classes do a presentation and parents are invited to come for it and the school comes out. So we had one for pride month. Um, and there was like pride themed, um, presentations and songs and, um, and education. And this was a wonderful, beautiful thing. The principal got a lot of blowback from, from, from sectors about some folks about this, um, but I think this is all just uh, really important for building a culture of acceptance and um, equality uh, amongst all residents. And so I think for the kids um, who are LGBTQ plus uh, in the audience there who are going to a school like that, who have an experience like that, it signals to them that they are worthy and welcome and have a place here. And I think that's what we need to do um, as a society in general. And that filters through all of our institutions. So um, I was really, I was really proud and touched, um, uh, that the school did that. Um, and that, that was a, um, a kind of launching point for, to talk with my own children about it, you know, that we, we can uh, have those discussions, um, because who knows how any of them also fall out, you know? And so like we want everyone. So, um, and I think that's just something we need to do, um, as a government, um, and as so social and civic institutions, um, and then put our resources to, defending folks um when they when their rights are infringed and say that we're not you know we're not going to have them infringed here and so um i'm proud of new haven in that way and that's something i think we need to continue to commit to yeah all right so yeah um yeah the looming the looming gothic towers that throw a shadow on everything um their obligation is huge i mean they have a huge obligation to the city um uh obviously um they neither of us would be what we are without without each other um but it is their home (laughs) and um when people say you know oh yale does so much for the city um that's okay that they don't pay taxes i'm like well you do so much for the city too and i do so much for the city too we all do so much like every individual who uh, commits to the civic life here does so does their part for the city and they still pay taxes. Um, but at the same time, I do. So I, I think it's important to keep up the pressure on the institution to um, provide financial resources for the city. Um, at the same time, I don't. The banging the drum of like the taxes and the untaxable land um, issue. Uh, it's a real problem. Um but I think it often blinds us from looking for other innovative solutions mm-hmm. to dealing with it. And um, while I do think that is right and true, and we need to keep that pressure up, and Yale needs to keep its commitment, and it really should expand its commitment. Yale, expand your commitment. Um, we need. We have to like face reality and 
be energetic with the system that we have and use all resources we can uh, to for the benefit of our residents. And what I mean is we can only tax land. Okay, so that's that's a problem. One thing we could do rather than advocating for or in addition to advocating for being able to tax Yale or them to up their commitment, advocating for cities to be able to impose different types of taxes. So it's not just on property, but maybe like sales and income as well. So we could diversify. And so it's not so every time Yale wants to like buy a building or any nonprofit wants to buy a building because it's not just Yale, you know, Um, it's not a crisis. But right now it is a crisis. Like we cannot lose more taxable property in the city. So um, if we had like a kind of various ways to impose taxes on sales or on uh, income, which other cities do have, that would give us more options until that happens. We can also impose things called user fees, which are not taxes, but are fees for specific services that the city uh, provides. New Haven provides services to this whole region Mm -hmm. and um, we generate the wealth for the whole region. If we were able to um, impose more user fees, um, which are legal under um, Connecticut constitutional law, um, on residents who don't live here, but use some of our some of our resources, we'd be able to recoup some of that funds and some of those losses here. Whether they are folks who are living at Yale and working at Yale and living in the in the suburbs, or just coming into work here, you know, our population during the workday now after post COVID doesn't explode as much, but still explodes. And so um, we should be doing that and being creative in those ways. But I think often this this debate has frozen us in an you know just looking at Yale as the big monster. And um, I think we can be more creative and like recoup those resources from the people connected to that institution, which is essentially the same thing as recouping those resources from that institution in little ways here or there that can help shore up um, uh, the funds of our city. And so that's, that's what I'm looking looking to do. Also, increasing the taxable property. Like there's, um, we have excess street space, we have excess city properties. We can also add to kind of that portfolio of taxable property as well in other ways. And so we should be doing all of those things all at once to be able to kind of combat this issue in creative ways um, while we still have this problem. Well, uh, quickly, most important question, favorite song. Oh, favorite song. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite song, but what's coming to mind right now is Every Breaking Wave by U2, which is like this song I really love, but then my son loved it so much he learned to play on the piano, which was kind of an awesome experience for me. So he just he just like heard it and then uh, learned it and then played it at a school uh, piano recital, which was cool. So, um, but I don't know if I have an actual favorite favorite. Oh, well, Liam Brennan, thank you so much for coming on Just In Time Conversations. Until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Yeah. Yo, yo, time to plane leaving? All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you know I'll never go. Even though you know I will, I'm a traveling man. Moving through places, space and time Got a lot of things I got to do God willing, I'm coming back to you Baby boo, I'm a traveling man Moving through places, space and time